Welcome back to Between Two White Coats, a podcast designed to help you be the healthiest version of yourself. I'm Dr. Michelle Plaster, a family medicine doctor. And I'm her co-host, Amber Foster, a family nurse practitioner. In our combined 30 years in medicine, we've seen a lot. We're discussing key issues surrounding health and wellness, answering some of our biggest questions, overcoming health obstacles, and giving patient-centered advice in hopes of educating you and providing the tools you need to live a healthy life. If you find our podcast helpful, please consider subscribing so you don't miss an episode. And don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review. This will help other people find our podcast. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to serving you. Welcome back to Between Two White Coats. Today, we're excited to have Kelly with us again. She was with us um, on a previous episode, um, kind of just generally talking about health insurance, kind of some of the questions that our patients had. So we're so excited to have you back again. Really excited. Thanks for having me back. Um, This episode, we want to talk kind of about overall financial wellness, because when you are money stressed, you are stressed other places. Um, You know, if you don't have money to buy groceries or money to even pay for your health insurance or money for food, um, like that's stressful. Yeah. So there's very little wellness without financial wellness. There really isn't. Um, And so we're going to first today talk about the three foundations of just personal finance. Uh, What do you have to say about that, Kelly? Sure. Thank you so much. Really excited to to talk about something that it's de- near and dear to my heart. And uh, when whenever somebody comes to me and uh, like, oh my gosh, I just got a you know check tax refund for a thousand dollars. What should I do with it? Like, should I buy it? Should I should I buy something? Should I invest? Should I put a down payment on a home? I say pause. Let's make sure we have these three other pillars of your your foundation checked. So the the first fi- pillar of financial wellness is: Do you have a plan in place to pay off high interest rate debt? So if you have credit card debt generally, or sometimes medical debt that is charging an interest rate, or any debt at all, do you, are, you, are you paying it off and do you have a plan to pay it off, or are you continuing to accumulate debt? If you're continuing to accumulate debt, then we first need to take a step back and find a way to kind of stop the bleeding and make a plan. Once you at least have a plan in place, then we talk about building up a little cash cushion. Um, ideally, you have no debt, that besides maybe a mortgage and a car payment or 0% debt. Uh, The second thing is having a cash cushion. So um, there's a very famous um, personal finance guy out there who does a radio show who likes the $1,000 emergency fund. If you're paying off debt, you need to at least have $1,000. I like that. I don't like a lot of the things he says personally, but I do like the $1,000 rule because it's not just about that being enough cash to kind of bail you out of surprise expenses and allow you to keep on your debt payoff plan. But there's something about seeing a comma in your account, knowing that you're not going to be paying bills, like having that comma there changes something in your mind. And suddenly that becomes your new zero. And you're like, you will do anything to keep your balance from dropping below below $1,000. And I think a huge part of financial wellness is our mindset about money. There's our financial reality and then there's our mindset, particularly when money starts to flow a little more freely. So once you've got a debt, a debt payment plan in place or you're debt-free, you've got $1,000, ideally you'd have up to three months of your expenses set aside into a savings account so that if you lose your job or you have some type of illness or have to take a break from income earning, you can keep your bills paid and keep your credit good. That's something, that's kind of a, a pie in the sky goal for a lot of people. Um, so, you know, I like to say, start with a thousand dollars and then maybe think about having like three months of your housing payments set aside and then add on three months of your car payment and then add on three months of your utilities. And so you can break it down into smaller goals. 
Um, but in the meantime, you also need to be saving for the future. And for most people, that's retirement. And for most people, that's using some type of 401k or 403b that's provided through your job. And for a lot of us, we have jobs that give us a match. So a, lot, a very common strategy is if you put in 5% of your pay, then your job will put in 4% of your, your pay. And that's free money. And when they made you a job offer and they decided how much to pay you, they factored in that they were going to be putting 4% of that in addition to your pay into the account. So when you're not doing it, you're literally saying, I don't want you to pay me as much as I am owed. So if you're, those are the three pillars to at least be kind of foundationally, there's, there's foundation levels, a plan to pay the debt, a thousand bucks in cash, saving to the match. Then we want to elevate that up. Debt's paid off. You have a fully funded emergency fund and you're on track to retire at the age of 65. Those are my rules. So Kelly, I just like to point out for all the listeners who I know are thinking this, that is not at all as fun as buying something. Um, not at all. But I, I, you know, we were, my husband and I were given this advice and, and it actually became fun to, we, we were, you know, working to get the three months. We worked up the bills that if we could not work, these were the bills we'd have to pay or else there would be devastating consequences to our family. Yes. And, um, and we worked up to that and we became very proud of ourselves when we hit it and it took a lot of hard work. And when we got there, we set that into an account that we just don't even see it. It doesn't look like the rest of the money. Um, and it's really, then we moved forward and I felt like I was jumping out of a plane with a parachute instead of jumping out of a plane without a parachute, because you know, you have that safety net, you know, that there's a soft place to fall if things go wrong. And with what we do for a living, things go we wrong. We see yeah. that things go wrong. And even with retirement, you know, we have 80-year-old patients who are showing up to work at Walmart every day because they did not plan. And it is a profound impact on their health and wellness that they have to do these jobs that they really don't have the physical abilities to do any longer um, because they did not prepare for their retirement. Um, so, you know, as, as, is this an option? Is this just a feel good thing from a health perspective? I say, no, this is an absolute necessary that it's the difference in jumping on the plane with the parachute or without it's, it's making sure that you are well cared for and, and that you can care for your family. So I, I yeah. think that that is, um, I think that is great advice, but it's, it's not the optional advice when you have the extra money, it's not extra money until you've taken care of these things. Yeah. And that's not to say you shouldn't buy things, you know, yeah. it's just, um, especially those critical kind of baseline, you know, not accumulate. If you're accumulating extra debt, that means you're spending more money than, than you're making. That is an emergency survival mode. You need to like put out, grab the buoy and, and really buckle down. Um, once you've kind of stemmed the flow and sometimes we're in that situation, if we lose our job and we don't have an emergency fund, but so once you get back to work, then it's time to kind of get reorganized. Um, but ideally we're in that position where you're sa you know, you're saving enough to retire. You've got that fully funded emergency fund. You don't have high interest rate debt. And then we talk about, you know, should we be investing in additional accounts? Should we be buying investment property? Like just the, should we be saving for education? Like you just don't even have to worry about that stuff until those three pillars are established. And that can alleviate a lot of stress because you, there's a lot of noise out there. There are entire channels dedicated to talking about money. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not easy to find for the basics. It's not easy to find someone that can just lay it down and help you that one-on-one. -on -one. And I will like do a little 
plug for um, a lot of employers these days are offering financial wellness benefits. And so your job may offer you the ability to, to work with a financial coach about these things. So if you are kind of struggling, not sure where you could cut back, uh, you want an accountability partner, ask your HR if you have a financial wellness benefit. You very well might. Most of the big companies have them, or if your EAP might contract with one. That's what I used to do for a job, and I'm telling you, that's life-changing work we were doing. Well, I think sometimes when you're in it, it's hard to be objective. So it's nice to have someone that you know has expertise in that area to say, hey, you know what, do you really need to eat Chick-fil-A three times a week? <laughs> <laughs> well, but they're also not going to shame you. You know, yeah, that's yeah. one of the things I, I dislike about some of the, the personal finance celebrities is they kind of go that hard driving. Um, and, and whereas a financial coach is going to be compassionate and say like, hey, I'm not saying you can't ever eat Chick-fil-A, but you probably don't need to go three times a week. Like, can you, you know, or if you're going like buy, you know, in bulk. <laughs> um, but it, it's it, that's one of the barriers to people accessing help is they're ashamed because they I should know better that they should all over themselves. Like I should know better. I shouldn't be here. Like I'm just going to get my act together and then I'll contact somebody. Right. No, 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 no. Like financial coaches are there to get you out of the hole. They're there to be your like your crime partners. I've cried on the phone with people before. Like it is. There's no shame, and we weren't taught how to use money. Like, we, we don't laugh at babies learning how to walk. We laugh because it's cute, but we're not, like, making fun of babies because they don't know how to walk when they fall out of the womb. Like, why, why, why would I make fun of you for not having money skill? <laughs> like, it's essential to survival, and yet we don't have it. It's a skill you have to learn. Take the shame away from that, and, um, and when you know better, you'll do better. So seek the knowledge so that you can know better. Yes. Um, and so if, if someone has set those, those three foundations um, and now has the extra money and is trying to make the best decision with what to do next, um, choosing insurances so that you don't end up you know, in, in a bad place. You know, insurance is difficult because you're planning for the catastrophic. You're planning for when something goes wrong, not letting something more go wrong by it destroying your finances. And so can you talk to us about whether people should choose to put money into um, an HSA versus an FSA? What are the difference in those things and why would they be beneficial? Yes, this is one of my favorite topics. So the most important thing when you're talking about HSA versus FSA is what the S stands for. And you, you can typically only use one at a time. So if you have an HSA, that means health savings account. FSA stands for flexible spending account. If you have a, a, an HSA, you can't have an FSA unless it's just for medical or just for dental and vision, not for medical. Um, if you're contributing to an HSA. So typically you'll have an FSA available to you if you're choosing a plan that has a lower deductible, maybe has co-pays, and then you have to kind of make an educated guess about what your out-of-pocket expenses that you're going to be paying are going to be. And then your employer will withhold that money from your paycheck tax-free, put it into this little account, and then you send your receipts in when you spend it, and they'll send you the money back. And basically, you're just kind of like wiping the taxes off of your income that you spend on medical expenses. And having it in that account so that you can't spend it on other things, and you, and you yes. have it available for the necessaries. And when it's a flexible spending account, the intention is you are going to spend that this year. And there's somebody who's going to make sure that you spend it on that and it's use it or lose it. So if you don't use it on medical expenses, it goes back to your job. Or if you quit your job without spending it down, they get it back. 
So a flexible spending account, you do have to kind of stay on top of what you think your out-of-pocket expenses are going to be. You don't want to overfund it. If you do, there are, you know, there's an FSA store. You can go buy like a bunch of bandages, bandages and sunscreen and, you know, things you might use in the future. But a health savings account, on the other hand, is your money. It's more like a 401k, but it's just for healthcare expenses. So it is literally a savings account that your job, if you open it through your job, will open in your name. And you, they, oftentimes they'll put money in there if you either, if you choose the plan that's eligible for it, or maybe you have to complete certain activities like getting your physical or you know, walking so many steps per day. There's incentives sometimes. Um, or, and then you have the ability to also contribute through payroll. But the difference is you can change the amount that you're putting in throughout the year. And if you put too much in, you don't spend it. It just rolls over. And so that based on that fact, I wish that most, uh, most people understood or everybody understood that a health savings account is not there to pay for your sunscreen. It's not there to pay for your $20 copay unless you have don't have 20 bucks to your name. That is a savings account to build up for those big medical expenses. So when you do have to go to the ER and you get a bill for $850, you have a savings account just for that. And not only is it just for that, but it's tax-free. So you can maybe earn a little interest in there and you didn't pay any taxes on the money when it went in. And so it's like a 30% discount depending on your tax, your tax situation on, on those bills already. And ideally, the best case scenario, once you have your pillar established, if you can fully fund your HSA and then not spend it, you can start investing it. And it can be a retirement account to pay your medical expenses and when you're retired. Or for me, when you quit your job, you don't have health insurance, you can pay out of pocket or you can do catastrophic only coverage and you have money to pay your bills. So like I, I've mentioned in the, in the prior, prior episode, my deductible is $6,700. That's a lot of money. <laughs> I managed to get $30,000 into my HSA before I quit over my you know 15 years of working in jobs. I would have more if I had realized this sooner because I prioritized putting money in there and I didn't spend it. The other thing people don't know about HSAs is that if you spend money and you have HSA, you have HSA dollars and you don't swipe your HSA card. So let's say I, you know, pay my doctor's bill, it's $150. I pay it using my, uh, my Capital One Saver card so I can get my 1% cash back. <laughs> um, I pay my Capital One Saver card off at the end of the month. But like tomorrow or next year or five, 10 years from now, I can actually go back to my HSA and say, you know what? Back in 2022, I paid a $150 bill. I want that money now out of my HSA. So you can reimburse yourself years in the future for expenses that you incur as long as you had the HSA in place. So there's a lot. I mean, I could do hours on advanced strategies, but the best way to use your HSA is to you know, I, ideally to let it build up for, for the long term. But for most people, it's more realistic to say, don't spend it on the little stuff and let it build up to pay for bigger expenses that would otherwise cause you to, you know, not be able to buy groceries or have to skimp on a bill or, or divert from your debt payoff plan. That is super helpful and totally knowledge to me. Um, <laughs> when, uh, when you talk about you quit your job and you then had to select insurance yourself, and you know, many times if you have an employer that offers a nice benefit package, you are handed, here's two or three insurances, choose your health insurance that's gonna serve you and your family best. 
Um, but then when you either work for someone who doesn't offer you health insurance or you're self-employed or unemployed, you have to try to navigate this on your own. What options exist for those people and how do they go about doing that? Great question. So there's a variety of options. So the most obvious one would be if, if you're married, your spouse's plan, if your spouse has a plan. If you're not married, but you're with somebody, maybe a trip to City Hall. There's a lot of other things to consider. <laughs> <laughs> but I do know people have gotten married for the insurance purpose. Um, but beyond that, you know, we hear about COBRA. COBRA is usually when you've left a job for up to 18 months, you can remain on your old plan, but you have to pay all of the costs. So depending on how much your employer was helping out with those costs, and you often don't know that until you quit, that could be really expensive. Um, so that's what I did for the first 18 months. And then after that, um, I, I, I had to go look at healthcare.gov, which is the Affordable Care Act Obamacare platform. Some states have their own, but um, the first question they ask you is what state do you live in? And, and then you'll find out right away whether or not your state's on there. Every state has different plans, but it's just kind of like at work where you look at your, the different plans, there's just gonna be a lot more options. And for me, the, the, the things that I prioritize once I'm established with a provider is I put their, their name in to see which plans they take. That eliminates a bunch. Uh, personally, I like an HSA, so I click HSA eligible. That like wipes out most of them. <laughs> but then often there's also a, a decider tool that will say like how much do you use healthcare, and it's you know small, medium, large, kind of like the Goldilocks scale. And then it'll make suggestions for what plans might be right for you, and it'll tell you what it'll cost per month. And um, and the you know the preconceived notion is these types of health insurance plans are really expensive. And they can be, especially if you've come from a, a job or a life where you had really great insurance, your employer provided, you know, either they paid a lot of the premium or you had a really great um, coverage. And so you, we naturally gravitate towards looking to that type of plan. And those are usually silver and gold plans. And those are a lot of money, like seven, $800 minimum for one person. So if you're covering your family, we're talking thousands of dollars. So most people at that point go, never mind. I'm going to go work at Starbucks, work at Home Depot, get a job that has insurance, and they just don't think about it again. But if you've managed to save up some money in your HSA, don't look at those plans that have the, all that coverage. Um, before we started uh, recording, you mentioned that you have patients who just forego insurance because they're self-employed and it's too expensive. I bet you they haven't looked at the super cheap plans. And I think, and super cheap being two, three, four hundred dollars a month, which is a lot of money. But I like to say, um, you know, okay, let's say it's four hundred dollars a month. That's forty-eight hundred dollars a year. That's a lot of money. But when you're self-employed, I'm assuming you're making some money. Like for forty-eight hundred dollars, wouldn't wouldn't you like to protect yourself from like a catastrophic, bankrupting medical event? Because that's what you're paying for. You're not paying for doctor's visits. You're not getting any help with that because you're paying for that under the deductible. You are getting a discount. But um, if you, you know, have to have an emergency appendectomy, your insurance is definitely going to make that a lot cheaper. Um, if you get in a car accident, you break a leg, all of those who need surgery. So I would argue for people who say they can't afford any insurance to look at the healthcare.gov marketplace. There's also the first question you're asked on healthcare.gov is how much money you make, what's your household size, you may qualify for Medicaid. Now that can change the, the providers that are available. Not all providers accept Medicaid, but that's some coverage. 
The other thing that not a lot of people talk about, and I'd be curious if you have patients who um, who use this, are cost-sharing plans. Are you familiar with cost-sharing plans? Yeah, we do have some in the area that uh, patients will let us the know. And is um, MediShare? I think, so. I think, is that what you're talking about, the cost savings? Yeah, they're usually through a faith-based group. They're, you know, often you have to declare um, you're a member of a congregation or, you know, some type of, of spiritual beliefs. Uh, they get a bad rap, uh, particularly in the health insurance world. Shocking. You never want to ask the person who's going to make money or not based on your decision, right. their opinion on something that would take money away from them. So um, being someone, you know, I'm, I really, really want to be unbiased. So I've, I had always just, ah, those aren't good. I've heard they're bad. But somebody challenged me and said, I have a, a health sharing plan and I love it. I love it. And I was like, okay, I respect this woman. <laughs> so I dug into it. So health sharing plans aren't health insurance. So if the, the penalty for not having insurance ever comes back, then you know this would you would have to pay a penalty. But what they are is kind of like the foundation of what insurance is. It's literally just a pool of money. And when you have spent so much on, on healthcare, then you can start using the pool to pay for your expenses. And so it's really just um, kind of catastrophic coverage. There's similar networks, you know, you, ha- you have to, if you want the cost sharing plan to reimburse you for your costs, you have to go see certain providers. But um, in each, if you're a member of it, each family has their own responsibility of what they have to pay for each year. But if you understand how it works and you do your homework and you do work to stay in plan, those can be a lot less expensive ways to access kind of catastrophic coverage for critical care. So if you end up with a cancer diagnosis or something, you um, you know you want to make sure before you join that there's providers in your community that actually will take this. But I would assume that if it's available in your community, <laughs> there are providers. Um, I find that these are also good plans for people who prefer to kind of see um, non-conventional type providers. So people who use a lot of acupuncture, go to naturopaths, like those are never going to be in network with any of the traditional healthcare plans. Um, but those, and I have no opinion on whether or not that's good healthcare, um, but there are people who prefer that. And But you still need access to the traditional healthcare system in right. a cost-effective way. Right, that's really helpful. What about, we offer self-pay services. And so- Good question, yes. Yeah, I always ask my providers, what's the self-pay rate? Um, because in my situation, because of the plan that I have, it's always less expensive. So I have ADHD. I see a psychiatrist a couple times a year, and her self-pay rate is one fifteen for med management. Um, but for when I run it through United Healthcare, it's one hundred and forty-four. So I have to decide each time. You know, do I want to save a little bit of money? Uh, the, the downside is that if I pay self-pay, then that doesn't contribute towards me reaching my deductible. So when I go towards the end of the year, if I still have thousands of dollars till I've so met, I've my, met deductible, my deductible, I'm going to do the self-pay, self-pay rate. rate. But, but earlier, earlier in the year, I'm probably going to go through United Healthcare just in case. case. So it's you know okay. kind of getting me there sooner. Um, and and I found uh, hospitals often the self-pay rate is lower than a, an insurance negotiated rate. We kind of touched on this in the last episode. Uh, but the insurance negotiated rates are typically assuming that the insurance company is going to pay a part of it. And so that's why it can be so frustrating for those of us who have higher deductibles where we are actually paying all of the costs until we've spent so much money that, um, well, like it would be cheaper if I didn't have insurance. But you do have the, the right to say, don't bill my insurance. I want to pay this myself. 
So I often choose that when I have an out-of-network anesthesiologist. Um, I mentioned in the prior episode, I've had a couple missed miscarriages. So that's when in the first trimester, the embryo is not growing. You know this, right? <laughs> um, and, and your body doesn't expel. And so um, you, know, you can have a lot of healthcare problems if your body doesn't resolve that pregnancy. And, uh, and so the first time that happened to me, I had um, a DNC done in the doctor's office. So it's an anesthesiology procedure. And I got a bill for $1,500 from the anesthesiologist. <laughs> um, and I had to pay it, and long story short, but the, the next time this happened, <laughs> I said, well, what, do you, what would you pay, what would you bill me if, I, if we didn't bill my insurance? And it was like $750. So a missed miscarriage is actually more expensive than a pregnancy. <laughs> Yeah, wow. Because of all of that stuff, right? And I, I think that makes a really good point. And Amber and I have both seen the consequences of people choosing to be uninsured. And um, and I don't say this without great empathy because it's a difficult financial decision. And health insurance is, is very costly and it's a difficult decision to make. I think a lot of people think, well, if I have this deductible of you know $10,000, and what I do throughout the year is going to cost less than ten thousand dollars. Why would why would I even have health why insurance? And so people choose to be uninsured, and and many times that might be the only decision making, and things are okay. Um, I had a patient in recent year that was fairly healthy and in her fifties, and I was and had her corporate insurance from her employer and then lost her uh, employment and chose to be uninsured. And and she could have gone either way financially, but she really thought that this was going to work out better. And she was extremely healthy until she wasn't. Um, and I am not convinced to this day that she didn't die because she was uninsured. Um, I wanted to get MRIs. I was sure there was a cancer growing somewhere. It required some gastroenterology scoping and CT scans to move to figure out where the cancer was. Um, she didn't have the finances for that kind of um, healthcare. The specialist and the imaging and everything adds up really fast. And we needed to do the full find the cancer workup. I mean, she's sitting in front of me and I know she has cancer. I don't know where. And the find the cancer workup, there's not one lab for that. This is a big workup. Um, she died of esophageal cancer within six months. We did none of the find the cancer workup because she didn't want to pay or have the money for it. If she was insured, we would have jumped. Um, and so, you know, I say that only to help people know it's not an important expense until it is. And when it is, it's life or death. Yeah, so you mentioned the ten thousand dollar deductible. You know that 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 can feel really painful to pay a lot of money and not realize the benefit. But when you need it, you're dang glad it's there. Yeah, yeah, and and it is. Um, you know, your your health doesn't matter until you get sick, and then you realize that you need you need these resources. We had a question about from um, our patient pool when we we're asking about billing stuff about open enrollment. So people hear that term, open enrollment, what does that mean? What's a qualifying event? You know, how can patients, they're like, okay, I'm on board. Y'all talk to me, we've got all this. Like now what do I do? Um, so, that's a great question. So um, most of us know that open enrollment is a time of year when if you have workplace uh, employer provided insurance that you can change plans, make changes to a variety of benefits, but typically around health insurance. Um, but there are some times that you could change in the middle of the year, which we call qualifying events. And most people, again, know that getting married, having a baby are qualifying events, but also is adopting a child, getting divorced, 
somebody in your that's in your family losing a job. You know, if your if your spouse is on their own plan and they lose their job, you can add them in the middle of the plan year. That's a qualifying event, um, which also often comes into play when people want to retire. <laughs> and they're like, I can't retire until I'm 65, I'll, or or at least till the end of the year to join for open enrollment. No, 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 you just quit your job. <laughs> like then it's a qualifying event, um, a death. So. Um, you know, most people don't realize, like I, I was divorced in my early, late twenties. Um, and my, uh, my ex and I had our own insurances, but that technically was a qualifying event. Like if I needed to change my plan, even though he wasn't on it and I wasn't on his, I could have changed it. So, um, whether or not functionally a change that needs to exist, those, those types of, um, plans to exist. And, and it's not just your health insurance plan. You can also reelect flexible spending account changes. I already mentioned HSAs. You can usually change that throughout the year, no matter what, but flexible spending account, maybe you need to add to what you're putting in, um, dependent care, um, flexible spending account. If you had a baby and you didn't have a baby before, you can elect to start putting tax-free money into there to pay for your, um, child care when you, uh, when, when parental leave ends. Um, so that's a, just a good question to ask HR. And recognizing if you're on a Medicare plan that open enrollment is October through December 7th, and that's when you can change your Medicare plan. So if you haven't been happy with how your Medicare plan has been serving you, then that's the time to look. And part D is the big one there, right? Like the, the drug every year you have to check your formulary, especially if you're on, my dad takes, uh, my dad has rheumatoid arthritis. He takes a biologic. He switches plans every year because they always remove it. And then he, he has to try seven other drugs before they'll go back to the one that freaking works. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, so true. Or so you get too. added medicines throughout the year and they're very expensive. That's the time where you can look and see where that coverage would improve. Yeah. I'm on Instagram and my handle is financial bliss coach. Um, yeah, financial bliss. Um, I, years ago behind me, these little signs, they actually have the words, follow your bliss on them. A friend gave this to me the first time that I, I quit my job and launched my own business. It didn't work the first time I had to go back and get a job, pay off my debt, build things back up again, get my financial foundation. But follow your bliss has been a thing for me. Um, and then I, I do have a, a coaching program um, with the acronym BLISS that stands for Begin, Look Inside, um, It's Possible, Specifics, and Setting the Path. So it's a kind of a financial coaching plan for, for smart, responsible women who uh, want to take the next step once they've set their foundation. And I love the things you've said that if you're not in the financial place that you want to be and really who is, um, that there's no shame in that, that this is an important foundation for making sure that you know, money like health is something you don't think about when it's not a concern. And when it is a concern, it changes everything, every single thought that you have. So being able to have a resource here, I think you're like people's financial primary care. I like I that. Yes, <laughs> I like that too. I'll have to think about it. I like that. Yes. People need a financial primary care. So I do. I, I, um, I'm so glad that we had this opportunity to address these things. Yeah. I know I've learned a lot. Um, I appreciate letting patients know that there are experts in these areas, it is unfortunately- and it's not us. Not us, <laughs> yes, it is, it is unfortunately us. But we are smarter than we were a half an hour yes. ago. Thank you so much, yes, Kelly, thank and thank you. you all for joining us. And I hope that you have a walk away today that will help you find your financial bliss.
Thank you so much, ladies. We like to leave you on a good note, so here's today's Tell Me Something Good. Something good is giving. We have a friend who was in the hospital for a really extensive surgery, and she planned before going in to take a basket full of goodies and let any person working in the hospital who came into her room take something to show gratitude and give something back. If she can remember to give in her biggest time of need, then I think we all can. So shout out to you, Whitney, for really role modeling how we can all do a good job giving. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take care of yourself.